Section 4 of Geronimo's Story of His Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Geronimo's Story of His Life by Geronimo. Transcribed by S. M. Barrett and translated by Asa Deklugi. Section 4 the Mexicans, Part Two. In the fall of 1864, twenty warriors were willing to go with me on another raid into Mexico. These were all chosen men, well armed and equipped for battle. As usual, we provided for the safety of our families before starting on this raid. Our whole tribe scattered and then reassembled at a camp about forty miles from the former place. In this way it would be hard for the Mexicans to trail them, and we would know where to find our families when we returned. Moreover, if any hostile Indian should see this large number of warriors leaving our range, they might attack our camp, but if they found no one at the usual place, their raid would fail. We went south through the Chaconan Apaches range, entered Sonora, Mexico, at a point directly south of Tombstone, Arizona, and went into hiding in the Sierra de Atunes Mountains. We attacked several settlements in the neighborhood and secured plenty of provisions and supplies. After about three days, we attacked and captured a mule pack train at a place called by the Indians Pontoco. It is situated in the mountains due west about one day's journey from Arispe. There were three drivers with this train. One was killed and two escaped. The train was loaded with mezcal, which was contained in bottles held in wicker baskets. As soon as we made camp, the Indians began to get drunk and fight each other. I, too, drank enough mezcal to feel the effect of it, but I was not drunk. I ordered the fighting stopped, but the order was disobeyed. Soon, almost a general fight was in progress. I tried to place a guard out around our camp, but all were drunk and refused to serve. I expected an attack from Mexican troops at any moment, and really it was a serious matter for me, for, being in command, I would be held responsible for any ill luck attending the expedition. Finally, the camp became comparatively still, for the Indians were too drunk to walk or even to fight. While they were in this stupor, I poured out all the mezcal, then I put out all the fires and moved the pack mules to a considerable distance from camp. After this, I returned to camp to try to do something for the wounded. I found that only two were dangerously wounded. From the leg of one of these, I cut an arrowhead, and from the shoulder of another, I withdrew a spear point. When all the wounds had been cared for, I myself kept guard until morning. The next day, we loaded our wounded on the pack mules and started for Arizona. The next day we captured some cattle from a herd and drove them home with us, but it was a very difficult matter to drive cattle when we were on foot. Caring for the wounded and keeping the cattle from escaping made our journey tedious, but we were not trailed and arrived safely at home with all the booty. We then gave a feast and dance and divided the spoils. After the dance, we killed all the cattle and dried the meat. We dressed the hides, and then the dried meat was packed in between these hides and stored away. 
all that winter we had plenty of meat. These were the first cattle we ever had. As usual, we killed and ate some of the mules. We had little use for mules, and if we could not trade them for something of value, we killed them. In the summer of 1865, with four warriors, I went again into Mexico. Heretofore, we had gone on foot. We were accustomed to fight on foot. Besides, we could more easily conceal ourselves when dismounted. But this time we wanted more cattle, and it was hard to drive them when we were on foot. We entered Sonora at a point southwest from Tombstone, Arizona, and followed the Sierra de Atunes Mountains to the southern limit, then crossed the country as far south as the mouth of Yaqui River. Here we saw a great lake, the Gulf of California, extending beyond the limit of sight. Then we turned north, attacked several settlements, and secured plenty of supplies. When we had come back northwest of Arispe, we secured about sixty head of cattle and drove them to our homes in Arizona. We did not go directly home, but camped in different valleys with our cattle. We were not trailed. When we arrived at our camp, the tribe was again assembled for feasting and dancing. Presents were given to everybody. Then the cattle were killed, and the meat dried and packed. Chapter 9. Varying Fortunes In the fall of 1865, with nine other warriors, I went into Mexico on foot. We attacked several settlements south of Casa Grande, and collected many horses and mules. We made our way northward with these animals through the mountains. When near Arispe, we made camp one evening, and, thinking that we were not being trailed, turned loose the whole herd, even those we had been riding. They were in a valley surrounded by steep mountains, and we were camped at the mouth of this valley, so that the animals could not leave without coming through our camp. Just as we had begun to eat our supper, our scouts came in and announced Mexican troops coming toward our camp. We started for the horses, but troops that our scouts had not seen were on the cliffs above us and opened fire. We scattered in all directions, and the troops recovered all our booty. In three days we reassembled at our appointed place of rendezvous in the Sierra Madre Mountains in northern Sonora. Mexican troops did not follow us, and we returned to Arizona without any more fighting, and with no booty. Again, I had nothing to say, but I was anxious for another raid. Early the next summer, 1866, I took thirty mounted warriors and invaded Mexican territory. We went south through Chihuahua, as far as Santa Cruz, Sonora, then crossed over the Sierra Madre Mountains, following the river course at the south end of the range. We kept on westward from the Sierra Madre Mountains to the Sierra de Sajaripa Mountains, and followed that range northward. We collected all the horses, mules, and cattle we wanted, and drove them northward through Sonora into Arizona. Mexicans saw us at many times and in many places, but they did not attack us at any time, nor did any troops attempt to follow us. When we arrived at our homes, we gave presents to all, and the tribe feasted and danced. During this raid, we had killed about 50 Mexicans. The next year, 1867, Mangus, Colorado, led eight warriors on a raid into Mexico. 
I went as a warrior, for I was always glad to fight the Mexicans. We rode south from near Tombstone, Arizona, into Sonora, Mexico. We attacked some cowboys, and, after a fight with them, in which two of their number were killed, we drove all their cattle northward. The second day we were driving the cattle, but had no scouts out. When we were not far from Arispe, Mexican troops rode upon us. They were well armed and well mounted, and when we first saw them they were not half a mile away from us. We left the cattle and rode as hard as we could toward the mountains, but they gained on us rapidly. Soon they opened fire, but were so far away from us that we were unable to reach them with our arrows. Finally we reached some timber, and, leaving our ponies, fought from cover. Then the Mexicans halted, collected our ponies, and rode away across the plains toward Arispe, driving the cattle with them. We stood and watched them until they disappeared in the distance, and then took up our march for home. We arrived home in five days with no victory to report, no spoils to divide, and not even the ponies which we had ridden into Mexico. This expedition was considered disgraceful. The warriors who had been with Mangus Colorado on this last expedition wanted to return to Mexico. They were not satisfied. Besides, they felt keenly the taunts of the other warriors. Mangus Colorado would not lead them back, so I took command and we went on foot, directly toward Arispe in Sonora, and made our camp in the Sierra de Sajaripa Mountains. There were only six of us, but we raided several settlements at night, captured many horses and mules, and loaded them with provisions, saddles, and blankets. Then we returned to Arizona, traveling only at night. When we arrived at our camp, we sent out scouts to prevent any surprise by Mexicans, assembled the tribe, feasted, danced, and divided the spoils. Mangus Colorado would not receive any of this booty, but we did not care. No Mexican troops followed us to Arizona. About a year after this, 1868, Mexican troops rounded up all the horses and mules of the tribe not far from our settlement. No raids had been made into Mexico that year, and we were not expecting any attacks. We were all in camp, having just returned from hunting. About two o'clock in the afternoon, two Mexican scouts were seen near our settlement. We killed these scouts, but the troops got under way with the herd of our horses and mules before we saw them. It was useless to try to overtake them on foot, and our tribe had not a horse left. I took twenty warriors and trailed them. We found the stock at a cattle ranch in Sonora, not far from Nacozari, and attacked the cowboys who had them in charge. We killed two men and lost none. After the fight we drove off our own stock and all of theirs. We were trailed by nine cowboys. I sent the stock on ahead and with three warriors stayed in the rear to intercept any attacking parties. One night, when near the Arizona line, we discovered these cowboys on our trail and watched them camp for the night and picket their horses. About midnight we stole into their camp and silently led away all their horses, leaving the cowboys asleep. Then we rode hard and overtook our companions, who always traveled at night instead of in the daytime. We turned these horses in with the herd 
and fell back to again intercept anyone who might trail us. What these nine cowboys did next morning I do not know, and I have never heard the Mexicans say anything about it. I know they did not follow us, for we were not molested. When we arrived in camp at home there was great rejoicing in the tribe. It was considered a good trick to get the Mexicans' horses and leave them asleep in the mountains. It was a long time before we again went into Mexico, or were disturbed by the Mexicans. Chapter 10 Other Raids When reading the foregoing chapters of Apache raids, one not acquainted with the lawlessness of the frontier might wonder how this tendency of the Apaches was developed to such a marked degree, but one acquainted with the real conditions, the disregard for law by both Mexicans and white men along the border line of old Mexico and Arizona in early days, can readily understand where the Apache got his education in the art of conducting lawless raids. In order, therefore, that those who are unacquainted with the conditions as they were in southern Arizona during the 80s may understand the environment of the Apaches, this chapter is given. The events herein narrated are taken by the author from many accounts given him by reliable men who lived in this section of country during the period mentioned. Raid by White Men In 1882, a company of six Mexican traders, who were known as smugglers because they evaded duties on goods which they brought into the United States and sold in Arizona, were camped in Skeleton Canyon, ten miles north of the north line of Old Mexico. They were known to carry large sums of money, but as they were always armed and ready to defend their possessions, they were not often molested. However, on this occasion, just as they were rising in the morning to prepare their breakfast, five white men opened fire on them from ambush, and all save one of the Mexicans were killed. This one, though wounded, finally made his escape. A few days after the killing, some cowboys on a roundup camped at this place and buried the remains, what the coyotes had left, of these five Mexicans. Two years later, at the same place, a cowboy found a leather bag containing seventy-two Mexican dollars, which small amount of money had been overlooked by the robbers. The men who did this killing lived in Arizona for many years afterwards, and, although it was known that they had committed the depredation, no arrests followed, and no attempt was made by any of the Mexicans to recover the property of their fellow citizens. Mexican Raid in 1884, a cattleman and four cowboys from his ranch started to drive some fat cattle to market at Tombstone, Arizona. The route they took led partly through Old Mexico and partly through Arizona. One night they camped in a canyon just south of the Mexican border. Next morning at daylight, the cowboy who had been on herd duty the last half of the night had just come in and aroused the camp when the Mexicans opened fire on them from ambush. The cattleman and one of the cowboys were severely wounded at the first volley and took shelter behind the camp wagon, from which position they fired as long as their ammunition lasted. The other three were only slightly wounded and reached cover, but only one escaped with his life. He remained in hiding for two days before his comrades found him. He saw the Mexicans rob the bodies of the dead, and lead away their saddle horses, 
after having cooked breakfast for themselves in the deserted camp. He was severely wounded, and all his ammunition was gone, hence he could only wait. On the second day after this raid, some of the cattle strayed back to the old ranch, thereby giving notice to the cowboys that there had been foul play. They found their wounded companions lying delirious near the decaying bodies of their comrades. No arrests were ever made in Mexico for these murders, and no attempt was made to recover damage or prosecute the robbers. The two instances above narrated will serve to show the reader what kind of an example was set for the Apaches by at least a portion of the inhabitants of the two Christian nations with whom they came in contact. Apache Raids It is thought well to give in this chapter some of the depredations of the Apaches not told by Geronimo. They are given as told by our own citizens and from the white man's point of view. In 1884, Judge McCormick and wife, accompanied by their young son, were driving from Silver City to Lordsburg when they were ambushed by Apaches. The bodies of the adults were found soon afterward, but the child's body was never recovered. Years afterward, an Apache squaw told some of the settlers in Arizona that the little boy, about eight years old, cried so much and was so stubborn that they had to kill him, although their original intention was to spare his life. In 1882, a man named Hunt was wounded in a row in a saloon in Tombstone, Arizona. During this row, two other men had been killed, and to avoid arrest, Hunt and his brother went into the mountains and camped about ten miles north of Willow Springs to await the healing of his wounds. A few days after they came there, Apache Indians attacked them and killed the wounded brother, but the other, by hard riding, made good his escape. In 1883, two eastern boys went into Arizona to prospect. Their real outing began at Willow Springs, where they had stayed two days with the cowboys. These cowboys had warned them against the Apaches, but the young men seemed entirely fearless and pushed on into the mountains. On the second morning after they left the settlement, one of the boys was getting breakfast while the other went to bring in the pack horses that had been hobbled and turned loose the night before to graze. Just about the time he found the horses, two Apache warriors rode out from cover toward him, and he made a hasty retreat to camp, jumping off of a bluff and in so doing breaking his leg. A consultation was then held between the two Easterners, and it was decided that perhaps all the stories they had been told of the Apache raids were true, and that it was advisable to surrender. Accordingly, a white handkerchief was tied to the end of a pole and raised cautiously above the top of the bluff. In about ten minutes the two Indians, one a very old warrior and the other a mere boy, evidently his son, rode into camp and dismounted. The old warrior examined the broken limb, then, without a word, proceeded to take off the shirt of the uninjured youth, with strips of which he carefully bound up the broken leg. After this, the two Indians ate the prepared breakfast and remounted their ponies. Then the old warrior, indicating the direction with his thumb, said, Dr. Lordsburg, three days, and silently rode away. 
the young men rode twenty-five miles to San Simony, where the cowboys fitted them out with a wagon to continue their journey to Lordsburg, seventy-five miles further, where a physician's services could be secured. In 1883, two prospectors, Alberts and Reese by name, were driving a team consisting of a horse and a mule through Turkey Creek Bottoms when they were shot by the Indians. The wagon and harness were left in the road, and the mule was found dead in the road two hundred yards from that place. Evidently the Indians had not much use for him. The guns of the prospectors were found later, but the horse they drove was not recovered. In none of the above-named instances were the bodies of the victims mutilated. However, there are many recorded instances in which the Apache Indians did mutilate the bodies of their victims. But it is claimed by Geronimo that these were outlawed Indians, as his regular warriors were instructed to scalp none except those killed in battle, and to torture none except to make them reveal desired information. In 1884, two cowboys in the employment of the San Simony Cattle Company were camped at Willow Springs, 18 miles southwest of Skeleton Canyon, and not far from Old Mexico. Just at sundown, their camp was surrounded by Apaches in war paint, who said they had been at war with the Mexicans and wished to return to the United States. There were about 75 Indians in the whole tribe, the squaws and children coming up later. They had with them about 150 Mexican horses. The Indians took possession of the camp and remained for about 10 days, getting their supplies of meat by killing cattle of the company. With this band of Indians was a white boy about 14 years old, who had evidently been with them from infancy, for he could not speak a word of English and did not understand much Spanish but spoke the Apache language readily. They would allow but one of the cowboys to leave camp at a time, keeping the other under guard. They had sentinels with spyglasses on all the hills and peaks surrounding the camp. One evening, when one of the cowboys, William Byrne, had been allowed to pass out of the camp, he noticed an Indian dismounted and, as he approached, discovered that the Indian had him under range of his rifle. He immediately dismounted and, standing on the opposite side from the redskin, threw his own Winchester across his horse's neck, when the Indian sprang on his horse and galloped toward him at full speed, making signs to him not to shoot, and when he approached him, dismounted and, pointing to the ground, showed Byrne many fresh deer tracks. Then, as an understanding had been established, the cowboy remounted and went on his way, leaving the Apache to hunt the deer. One day when this cowboy was about ten miles from camp, he found two splendid horses of the Indians. These horses had strayed from the herd. Thinking that they would, in a way, compensate for the cattle the Apaches were eating, he drove them on for about five miles into a canyon where there was plenty of grass and water, and left them there, intending to come back after the departure of the Indians, and take possession of them. On the tenth day after the arrival of this band of Indians, United States troops, accompanied by two Indians who had been sent to make the arrangements, arrived in camp, paid for the cattle the Apaches had eaten, took the Indians and their stock, and moved on towards Fort Bowie. 
The cowboys immediately started for the canyon where the two horses had been left, but had not gone far when they met two Indians driving these horses in front of them as they pushed on to overtake the tribe. Evidently the shrewdness of the pale-face had not outwitted the red man that time. Geronimo says he was in no wise connected with the events herein mentioned, but refuses to state whether he knows anything about them. He holds it unmanly to tell of any depredations of red men except those for which he was responsible. Such were the events transpiring in, quotes, Apache land, during the days when Geronimo was leading his warriors to avenge the, quotes, wrongs of his people. This chapter will serve to show that the Apache had plenty of examples of lawlessness furnished him, and also that he was a very apt scholar in this school of savage lawlessness. End of Part 2 of the Mexicans